Hello, and welcome to the Navicast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 109th episode of the Navicast titled Judgment Day Part 2, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Catlin 4, in which King Terrace Renly Baratheon is righteously vaporized by the magical equivalent of a drone strike. Man, you had said that Brand 3 with I had maybe said that Brand 3 with the Harvest Feast was the ultimate feel-good chapter of Song of Ice and Fire, but really, dude, I think this might be the one. You know, Jeff, I'm going to restrain from pointing out how inappropriate the drone strike analogy is. Instead, <laughs> since you said Judgment Day, I will just hum the Terminator theme to myself over and over again in my head. Just da-dun-dun-da-dun, dun-dun-dun-da-dun. Okay, I'm all better. We can proceed. We absolutely can. But before we actually proceed, we wanted to uh, we wanted to try something a little bit different this time. So when we first started this, the, the Anodicast podcast, we had said many times over that we were standing on the shoulder of giants who had propped us up before. Folks like Stephen Atwell, the Davos Fingers podcast, Game of Owns. All of these podcasts had done great work ahead of time to kind of ensure that when we came into the podcast scene that we had really kind of an easy time like getting adjusted and getting you know coming in and coming in with you guys but one of the things we want to do is also to boost up those of us those of our friends and those of those podcasts and these news podcasts the song of ice and fire community which we feel are of worth which we feel are worth some special significance and special recognition especially in this special special episode for sure we wanted to start out by shouting out the learned hands podcast this is being done by the laws of ice and fire folks two great friends of ours and patrons of ours mary and clint clint of course we've had on before for clash of kings Tyrion 2 dealing with Varus's shadow on a wall speech it was, it was one of our best guest performances it was so great and they're doing great on their own they've been doing a couple episodes on legal issues in a song of ice and fire the thorny legal issues that come up come up with like for example daenerys's court and marine in their latest episode how legitimate mm-hmm. is that what kind of rule of law are they sitting down so you should absolutely check out Learned Hands, you should check out Laws of Ice and Fire, their website, and Laws of Ice and Fire, their Twitter. Mary and Clint are two of our favorite people, and they are unsurprisingly doing a great job. They absolutely are. I really, really enjoyed their latest episode on Danny's court in Marine. It was a whole lot of fun, so definitely check that out. But we wanted to recognize one other podcast, and that is the Platitoes podcast. These guys are not a new podcast. They have been around for a little over a year now. But one of our patrons, Lord Micah, joined that podcast as a permanent co-host alongside of Travis and Brett. So we wanted to, and, and, and this was announced in their latest episodes, so we wanted to let you guys know if you're looking for an excellent podcast, there is no better one than the Planetos podcast, which is doing a lot of analysis of small characters and minor characters and doing just wonderful work and bringing on an excellent and knowledgeable person in the Song of Ice and, F- and, the Song of Ice and Fire community, namely Micah. So thank you all for your support and thank you and welcome to Micah to the new podcast. That's awesome. Really, really awesome. Absolutely. Planetos podcast is great. You should definitely check them out if you haven't already. They've been going for a little while and we're so pleased. Micah's done great work writing about the theory about Heil Hunt and we're so glad that Micah was on the on the Planetos podcast as well. We're just, uh, it makes us so happy to be, be sharing this community with you folks. We live in a society and we happen to live in your guys' society alongside you guys. We really appreciate that. <laughs> but before we proceed and just thank all of our patrons, all of our small council patrons that is, we have a special announcement and that is that we actually hit our stretch goal of getting 900 total patrons today of all days. Like it, we, it came very, very quickly. It was a uh, kind of really neat. We went from like just being 10 away from hitting 900 patrons to having being to having 900 patrons in about five minutes, which is awesome. And that's all a testament to you guys. We really, really appreciate that. 
And there are rewards for that, right? That's the cool thing about hitting 900 patrons, right? What are those rewards again? I, sh- I forget. I'll, maybe you could jog my memory. Well, folks, if you've happened to read uh, read a little chapter known as, uh, I forget the title, Jeff, what's this chapter called? Oh, uh, well, I, I never read The Forsaken, but I did hear George R. R. Martin, you know, read it to me at That's interesting, back Jeff. in 2016. Did, do you, is this the chapter you're referring to? So, folks, Jeff got to listen to George R. R. Martin read The Forsaken, the Aaron Dampier chapter released from The Winds of Winter. I got to listen to George's wonderful scratchy-toned voice in an audio file some enterprising folks passed along to me, and I, I from that I typed the transcript of The Forsaken. So if you have read The Forsaken, you probably have read my version of it. It is my favorite chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, if you count it. It's one of my favorite pieces of fiction ever. I will one day forgive Jeff for being there to hear that loud when I was not there. Truly, truly unforgivable. No, but we are going to be doing uh, several Patreon episodes just about the Forsaken over the coming months as a reward for hitting our 900 patrons level. Mm-hmm. We had, I had first thought it was going to be three episodes. Yeah, it's definitely going to be at least four episodes. So it's going to be a lot of fun to kind of delve deep into Emmett's favorite chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But that's only made possible by you guys and your wonderful support for us over these two years we've had a patron. So we wanted to thank all of you guys if we could, but we're not going to read all 900 names. Instead, we're going to go right into talking about our small council patrons who support us on Patreon. So... As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Hedgegal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex Rainbow, Commander of the Ladies and Gentlemen's, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving His Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldivar, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Bron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Kogarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, the Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Sean Wallace Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexandra of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, and Lady Ashley. Thank you, counselors, very, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And as always, our spoiler wing, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck egg devos, histories, interviews, the Winspinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Travis one of our small counselors, who asks, guys, 
One of the things that continues to astonish me is that King Robert Baratheon had no personal company of Baratheon soldiers around him. I get that George has to position the Lannisters both figuratively and literally as taking over the court, but why wouldn't a king in a strong feudal system, with no standing army, have a personal force that is loyal solely to him, not just the office and throne he occupies like the Kingsguard and Goldcloaks? Interestingly, Game of Thrones Season 1 features Baratheon soldiers accompanying Robert to Winterfell, and the same outfit-slash-armor appears later in Season 2 in both Stannis and Renly's camps and armies. Well, what do you make of that, Jeff? Why do you think we uh, we don't see uh, a personal company of Baratheon soldiers around King Robert? Is is there is this one where you look for an in-universe explanation or more of like a kind of a writer explanation for it? Yeah, there's so there's the distinction between the Watts, Watsonian and the the Sherlockian. That's wrong, but it's you, you know what I mean. <laughs> That up. Watsonian and and, and uh, Doylist, I believe. Doylist, there you go, there you go. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, I I think it's I, I look at a not in universe explanation. I look at an external one, and that namely in the narrative, George needed Robert to look weak and be surrounded by Lannisters throughout a Game of Thrones in order to make his fall from power very plausible. I think George also too. I mean, if you want to like try and develop like a in world explanation, maybe it's that all the Stormland soldiers were in Storm's End or a Dragonstone or something like that. And that Cersei only trusted red cloaks to be around her and gold cloaks as well. I do think that Travis makes a really good point um, that the gold cloaks kind of serve the purpose of being like the police force and kind of the neutral arbiter of any people who would attempt to dispute Robert, I guess, so to speak, but at least defend him, so to speak. Although, of course, that doesn't really prove uh, prove itself out. And the Kingsguard, too, as the seven swords are supposed to defend the king. This is likely to where where George is kind of doing some of the in-universe expeditions. But ultimately, I, I te- this is probably the wrong way to look at it, but I tend to look at it as that the external writerly way that George was doing things in order to make Robert appear weak and to kind of surround Robert with the red and crimson colors of the love the Lancers. It makes it a perfect visual, and George is really, really good with his visuals in A Song of Ice and Fire, but especially his colors. I think those are all great points. Uh, someone is raising, the, a couple of people are raising the point in the chat there are those 50 men that Renly makes off with when he leaves King's Landing. And a couple of those are like, you know, Loras Terrell and a couple of squires and like, you know, probably some Reach Lordlings who are hanging around those places. But presumably if there was Stormland loyalists, you know, hanging around after Robert died, leaving with Renly kind of makes some political sense. But these people are never named. So I think overall it's definitely what you're saying. We are being given a sense of Robert with the noose tightening around him. You know, the Lannisters and Littlefinger are the people who are running the court. And also, yeah, because Robert needs to die. And that's going to be a lot harder to do if he always has a bunch of soldiers hanging around him. And also Ned needs to go down, which is going to be a lot harder to do if he has a bunch of Baratheon soldiers hanging around he can call on. He, you know, George needs to get Renly out of the city. He needs to have Stannis not show up. He needs to cut all these avenues of escape to Ned off. And having Baratheon soldiers around would be like one more plot point he has to resolve. So he'd be like, yeah, just don't have him there in the first place. <laughs> I get that. I could get that too. I think that works as the best explanation for why the Baratheons are not necessarily present. Although I do wonder those 50 soldiers that Renly has, whether they are loyal to Renly first before they're loyal to Robert, whether they're actually Storm's End men as opposed to Robert's specific men, royal soldiers, so to speak. But, I, you know, uh, this uh, I was about to like transition, but I have one more point to make. I promise, just one more. Uh, but that does kind of speak to something when we're talking about armies, so to speak, in, in Song of Ice and Fire, as well as the historical Western European model of governance. And that there wasn't this, there wasn't a concept of royal armies necessarily until later industrialization. What primarily happened is that the king would have to solicit the support of his lords in order to develop a army, a royal army, a national army a crusader army, if you want to call it that. And that that's what would necessarily be the force that would go to war with the king as opposed to the king having a force of fifteen to 20,000 soldiers that he can easily just snatch up and just go to war because, you know, the lords didn't want to necessarily share as 
they didn't want to share power with the king, and so the way they would restrict the king's power was in not having a national army. Anyways, enough nerdery for me about history, indeed. Well said, sir. I think I, I no, I think you made your points perfectly. Always you can always make extra points. That's allowed. It's your podcast. So we want to thank you, Lord Travis, our Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves on the Small Council. If you'd like to ask us questions, we have to answer here on the Not a Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can find special posts, show notes, and 27 A Song of Ice and Fire, and 8 Fever Dream bonus episodes. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our next Patreon-only bonus episode will not be a Patreon-only or a bonus episode. <laughs> Instead, as we've alluded to here, if you've been watching our live stream episodes, we will be taking a week off from doing our chapter-by-chapter focus to bring you... King Terrorist Star Analysis of King Renly Baratheon, and this episode will be available to everyone as part of our weekly live stream, and will be out on our regular podcast feed as a sample bonus. Of course, it will also be available to listen early for all our poor fellow and above patrons. Mm-hmm. We figured that now was a good time to kind of give you guys a little bit of a treat and show you the types of episodes you can hear as a poor fellow or above patron if you are not one of our 902 patrons as it stands right now. So we hope that you enjoy this episode. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And we will be picking up with the Clash of Kings Tyrion 8 on April 27th as our next live cast with a general release date of May the 4th be with you but enough about patreon when we last checked in with catelyn stark she had prayed to the gods found comfort and had a plan for peace which was rudely dashed to pieces by renly brathium let's find out the consequences of not giving peace a chance in this synopsis of a clash of kings catelyn for part two i beg you in the name of the mother catelyn began when a sudden gust of wind flung open the door of her tent she thought she glimpsed movement but when she turned her head it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. She heard Renly begin, begin a jest, his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, candles guttering, shivering. Something was wrong. Queer. And then she saw Renly's sword still in its scabbard, sheathed still, but the shadow sword. Cold, said Renly in a small, puzzled voice. A heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small, thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. Well, Jesus Christ, that is a fucking way to start a chapter, George R. R. Martin. Well, we're not actually starting a chapter. This is the middle of the chapter. Of course, we're doing part two of this chapter. Brienne of Tarth turns, starts to say something, and then screams as Renly stumbles into her arms. King? Renly Brathian tries to say a word, but he chokes on his blood, and Brienne throws back her head and screams in anguish. The shadow. The shadow, Catelyn thought. Something dark and evil had happened here. She knew. Something that she could not begin to understand. Renly never cast that shadow. Death came in that door and blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. Sir Robert Royce and Sir Eamon Kai come bursting in through the tent flap with two men at arms behind them with torches. When they see Brienne, they immediately make a move on the jump to conclusions board and assume she murdered Renly. That's an interesting assumption. Eamon calls Brienne wicked and Robert asks why Brienne did it. Her rainbow cloak soaked red with blood. Brienne looks up, unable to verbalize what happened. Eamon grabs a battle axe off a table by the entrance to the tent and tells Brienne she's about to die. But Catelyn screams, no, but it's too late. The blood madness is on Kai and the two men at arms. They rush Brienne. What follows is amazing. Brienne displaying her incredible skill at arms, grabbing Renly's sword and using it to defend herself against Eamon's axe. She throws Renly's body rudely aside, which I know I'm not supposed to laugh. One of the men at arms thrusts a torch against Brienne, but it fails to light the rainbow cloak she's wearing due to all the blood soaking into it. 
The torch in the man-at-arms' hand end up meeting the business end of Brienne slash Renly's sword, but the torch lights the tent on fire. The other man-at-arms attacks, and Brienne parries his blow, but then Eamon joins the fight, and Eamon and the man-at-arms push Brienne back, but she continues to hold them at bay. On the ground, Renly's head rolled sickeningly to one side, and his second mouth yawned wide, the blood coming from him now in slow pulses. Catelyn notices that Robert Royce, who is holding back, is now drawing his sword, and she begs him to stop. It wasn't Brienne. Robert needs to help the girl. Hear me. It was Stannis. The name was on her lips before she could think how it got there. But as she said it, she knew that it was true. I swear it, Robar. You know me. It was Stannis who killed him. Robar asks, how could it possibly be Stannis? But Catelyn doesn't know. It was dark magic, sorcery, a shadow, a shadow with a sword. She begs Robar to listen. Brienne loved Renly. More shouts and voices come from outside, and Catelyn tells Robar that Brienne is innocent, and she swears on Ned's grave and her honor as a Stark. And in a moment that's really reminiscent of the prologue from A Game of Thrones, Robar Royce turns out brave in the end. I will hold them, Sir Robar said. Get her away. He turned and went out. The fire runs up the walls of the tent as Eamon presses Brienne hard, forgetting about Catelyn. That is until Catelyn doinks his head with an iron brazier, sending the knight to his knees but not killing him. Yet, Catelyn tells Brienne that they need to get the fuck out of here, and Brienne immediately responds by cutting a hole in the tent. They push out into the camp, and Catelyn urges Brienne to walk slowly and act like nothing was wrong. Yeah, that should be easy. But Brienne is able to follow suit because she's amazing, holstering her weapon and walking next to Catelyn. The night air smelled of rain. Behind them, the king's pavilion was well ablaze, flames rising high against the dark. No one made any move to stop them. Men rushed past them, shouting of fire and murder and sorcery. Others stood in small groups and spoke in low voices. A few were praying, and one young squire was on his knees, sobbing openly. Renly's army lines come apart all around the pair as they make their way through the camp as morning approaches. Storm's End rises in front of them like a, quote, dream of stone, which is an amazing phrase, while fingers of light make their way across the field. Morning ago, she had heard old Nan call them once, spirits returning through their graves, and Renly was one of them now, gone like his brother, like her own dear Ned. I never held him, but as he died, Brienne said quietly as they walked through the spreading chaos. Her voice sounded as if she might break an instant. He was laughing one moment, and suddenly the blood was everywhere. My, my lady, I, I do not understand. D did you see? Did you? I saw a shadow. I thought it was Renly's shadow at first, but it was his brother's. Lord Stannis? I, I felt him. It makes no sense, I know. It made sense enough for Brienne. I will kill him, the tall, homely girl declared. With my lord's own sword, I will kill him. I swear it. I swear it. I swear it. Catelyn and Brienne make it back to the small encampment of North Bend and Riverlanders. Howell Mullen states that everything has gone to shit and, uh, is Renly? Yeah, he's dead. Catelyn says, but they didn't do it. What about the battle? There ain't gonna be a battle. Catelyn turns to Brienne and tells her that she could come with them. They brought twice the number of horses they need. But Brienne wants to go get her own horse and her own armor first. No, not gonna happen. They need to ride out before anyone comes looking for them. They were with Renly when he died, and if anyone tries to stop them, kill them. And I love this side of Catelyn coming out here. Just love it. As the long fingers of dawn fanned across the fields, color was returning to the world. Where gray men had sat gray horses armed with shadow spears, the points of 10,000 lances now glinted silverly cold, and on the myriad flapping banners, Catelyn saw the blush of red and pink and orange, the richness of blues and browns, the blaze of gold and yellow, all the power of storms and in High Garden, the power that had been Renly's an hour ago. They belong to Stannis now, she realized. 
even if they do not know it themselves yet. Where else are they to turn if not to the last Baratheon? Stannis is one all with a single evil stroke. I am the rightful king, he declared, his jaw clenched hard as iron, and your son no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. A chill went through her. And that is the second half to A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 4. Wow, what a masterful chapter all around. I mean, so much of it really uh, can't be summarized. I mean, as you, you can tell, I just basically quoted half of that fucking end of that chapter. Hence, you know, why the synopsis, again, just me quoting it. What did you think of this chapter, dude? So here we are, no turning back, the age of wonder and terror. High fantasy invaded by horror. All the buildup of magical power we've been talking about since Danny's dragon birth. Characters like Jojen, Jochen, Quaith, Piat Pri, and above all, Melisandre, standing in for the influence of the supernatural on the natural world. It's all been leading to this. The most well-liked king, with his biggest army, armed and armored, surrounded by his powerful lords and his rainbow guard. A glorious future ahead of him, the living embodiment of political power. And then it all falls apart hmm. from the center outward. Life blown out like a candle by a sorcerous presence that vanishes as swiftly as it arrived, like a bad dream. But this is a nightmare that no one can awake from. Not Catelyn, not Brienne, not even Stannis, and certainly not the reader. When the sun rises at the end of this chapter, it rises on a different world and a different story, permanently changed by nothing more than a shadow on a wall. I love that. That's perfectly said. As always, I love the way that like you interact with like the synopsis. It's done really, really well. It's beautiful, you know. And I was thinking like too, like a lesser writer would make this chapter, especially the latter half of this chapter. Catelyn being Ariel Hota, you know, a camera on the events as they unfold. But George R. R. Martin does a really remarkable and great job of integrating Catelyn into every detail, while also taking nothing away from the magical event as it unfolds. And this event changes the entire tone of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I know we've seen magic before, but it's here that magic doesn't feel like a one-off with Danny and her dragons or a that's creepy with Crescent and Melisandre. And it doesn't feel like the others, too, just kind of showing up and eventually having some relevance to the plot. Here, magic unfolds in front of a point of view character who is made of staunch, pragmatic stuff. You know, stuff that I'm made of, of course. I'm kidding. George places this terrifying aspect of magic in the eyes of Catelyn, a skeptic of both Stannis and Renly, and she's also a Faith of the Seven believer. In Catelyn, George R. R. Martin chose a fascinating, unique point of view to show the birth of that new world you're referencing, a darker, shadowy world. I think you've made a great point. In Catelyn's eyes specifically, this becomes not just a wild phenomenon, but like a philosophical transformation of what it means to exist in this world. And before the stranger, in the form of the shadow baby, enters the tent to snuff out the light within, Catelyn makes one last plea for her old world, one last plea for peace on behalf of the mother. She's speaking not only for the faith of the seven, but for herself as a mother and for the mother who bore both Stannis and Renly. And the latter starts to respond in jest, of course. As much as he makes use of faith symbolism, he doesn't take any of it seriously. But death interrupts his infinite jest. Renly's last word is cold. He's puzzled by the sudden fatal interruption of his grand narrative. He's so invested in life, love, youth, song, summer, his peach, that he doesn't recognize death, even when it stares back at him, wearing his brother's face. 
this 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 fate of Renly it all falling apart from within. As I was rereading it, I, I started to think about how strongly it echoes the great Poe story, the Red Mask of Death, the story about a, a plague unfolding and there's this grand indulgent like nihilistic party going on in the middle of it, and then death stalking into the middle of it to strike down the host and then vanish into the air. There's even all this rainbow color symbolism in that story. I think George might be riffing pretty hard on it. And it also, of course, makes me think about greatest novel ever, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> and there's this one scene in which the, the central couple, closest thing that book has to a central couple, is like laughing and loving and tickling each other and having a great time in this like abandoned village they're hiding at when to get away from the Blitz, away from World War II. And then a rocket lands when they're in the middle of tickling each other. And there's this line, death has come in the pantry door, stands watching them, iron and patient, with a look that says, try to tickle me. And that's what happens here. All the youth and wealth and laughter that defined Renly's image, his shadow on the wall, it dries up at once in the shadowy face of death, in the face of the stranger. And this is why the mother was crying in the sept. This is why Catalin saw the shadows lurking there. Death has slipped the bonds of the graveyard to haunt the summer nights. The party is over. The song is silenced. And winter has come. Everyone goes through their own version of this. Now, most of us aren't kings. Most of us aren't killed by nightmare shadow versions of their own brothers. But all of us die. All of us get older, and all of us wonder, when did that happen? Exactly. We are all flowers that open up before the sun, and then wilt and pass away. Renly is associated with nature imagery in part to make this feel universal, like it's something happening to the world. All the rush of youthful energy that swelled up in Renly's camp feels like it just hit a brick wall which is what it always feels like when a young person dies. It's the feeling of possibility dissipating, a future glimpsed in the flames, only to burn up into ash. Love replaced by entropy, the sad, slow collapse of all things. And this is focused like a laser through the prism of Brienne, the ultimate summer night in some ways. She told Catelyn song would make them all immortal. And now she's being shown the truth. Men are meat, as Euron says. It doesn't matter how glorious Renly seemed, or how special he made her feel. He has no power over death. And yeah, sure, Renly will live in legend and song. Garland wears his armor to great effect at the Blackwater. Renly is sung of positively at the Purple Wedding. But that's no comfort to Brienne, who never held him but as he died. It doesn't erase the horror she experiences, nor the trauma she has to deal with later. The rainbow cloak he gave her, the one that made her face light up with pride, is stained red with blood. The red of anger and vengeance, the red of the comet, the red of R'hllor. Her innocence dies with Renly. The image of her throwing back her head and shrieking in torment as she holds his corpse, that is an image I have never been able to shake since the first time I read this chapter. I agree. It's it's such a powerful image. Depending on, it doesn't really matter what your opinion of Renly Baratheon is. If you don't like Brienne of Tarth, you're wrong, and you should check yourself before you wreck yourself, buddy. But I think you know too. That's stupid. Um, but uh, but I think too, it's it's it, that that horror is just so present in that moment for Brienne of Tarth to actually experience and witness something that horrifying and terrifying for her, and it's something that she wanted to avoid, or she thought she was going to avoid. Remember back, you'd reference this before, but in Catelyn's second chapter. She was kind of prophetic when talking about what happened to Renly after the fact, after he dies here. Brienne, Brienne regarded Catelyn with eyes as blue as her armor. Winter will never come for the likes of us. Should we die in battle, they will surely sing of us. And it's always summer in the songs. And the songs, all knights are gallant, all maids are beautiful, and the sun is always shining. 
you know, literal winter is never going to come for the Summer King for Renly Baratheon. But the survivors, like Brienne, are definitely going to experience it. But what does it matter if the songs are sung of those who experience metaphorical winter, that is death? They can't hear those songs. Oh, that's so well put. It's that literal death versus metaphorical death, right? The death of your body versus the death of your soul. Which is worse? Who's to say? Mm -hmm. But of course, Brienne won't be a POV until A Feast for Crows. Our eyes on Renly's death are Catalan's. She's much more worldly in many ways than Brienne, but... Not regarding magic, this is as new and frightening an experience for her as it is for anyone else. And George does such a good job of rating the assassination through her eyes. At first, she thinks a gust of wind has blown into the tent. Which in a way it has. The storm off the sea. The grief of the gods come home to roost once more at storm's end. It's the wind of winter that kills summer, blows out the candles, and leaves you alone in the dark. This is the face that Catelyn refused to look at in the sept. The stranger. And perhaps because she refused to look at death, lest it stop for her, because it is so painful to look directly upon its works, she doesn't realize at first what she's looking at here. And I cannot possibly heap enough praise on George's writing here, try as I might. She thought she glimpsed movement, but when she turned her head, it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. She heard Renly begin a jest, his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, candles guttering, shivering, something was queer, wrong. Hmm. And then she saw Renly's sword, still in its scabbard, sheathed still. But the shadow sword? Cold, said Renly in a small puzzled voice, a heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. I had to read it again because it's perfect. <laughs> this is how the royal family dies, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Four sentences, and everything has come apart. Politically, physically, metaphysically. All the eerie cinematic imagery we talked about last week comes together into an unforgettable horror tableau, like fingers coiled into a fist and striking home. What horror is, in part, is the process by which the everyday transforms into the nightmarish. And this reflects the real world, because even though the real world doesn't have literal shadow monsters, it has people whose lives are shattered in an instant by abusers, disasters, and the revelations of loss and disease. We don't have literal shadow assassins, but we do have people who work in the shadows and for money kill people. And these people are employed by intelligence agencies around the world. A lot of our fictions of these people are outlandish and ridiculous, but those people absolutely exist. And this is mm. George reflecting that in a fantasy context. Horror is about events that make you look at the world differently. Horror is a stunned gaze that no longer recognizes itself in the mirror that cannot draw strength from home and family like it once did. Horror is the end of happiness. And so we see the corruption of one of the most ubiquitous of things, a shadow. Everyone has one. Yet precisely because everyone has one, shadows can be powerful sources of anxiety. They are mined for that quality in stories and myths. Shadows are symbols of the repressed self in certain strains of psychology and philosophy, and they stand in for both maturation and death in many traditions. The shadow in Peter Pan is a particularly familiar reference point for Western folk, something he constantly has to wrestle with as he tries to say his, his innocent young self. A shadow is an intimate thing that belongs to you, but it's also a faded outline that lacks any of your features. It's a thing without personality or individuality. 
It follows behind you, picking up your scraps, ignored, forgotten, denied the sun by your very existence. Stannis vis-a-vis Robert. <laughs> you take it for granted. Stannis vis-a-vis Robert. Right. It can serve as a vessel for all the nasty thoughts you clamp down, the parts of yourself you'd like to forget, your dark side hidden away behind Darth Vader's mask. But your shadow is also stalking you, tracing your footsteps, with you when no one else is, able to slip past armies and guards because who looks twice at a shadow? Until it strikes. Until it moves on its own. Until its non-existent sword somehow touches and cuts and kills the living. That is a horror to shake the human soul. It is all the more horrifying because Catalin's first fear when she turns around that someone has stolen into the tent is assuaged. Oh, it's only a shadow, she thinks for a half second. That's a classic horror maneuver, the fake-out scare. The red herring shot just before you go in for the kill. She assumes it's Renly's shadow because it's a man's shadow, but also because Stannis and Renly are brothers, so of course their shadows look alike. And doesn't that perfectly capture the horror of what's happening? Catelyn is only fooled because this is kinslaying, because they are both Baratheons. Because they're so alike, both in physical appearance as well as who they are deep down inside of themselves, and that's what makes this such a stunning scene in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's also the perfect visual that the Sun King, the one Baratheon who overflows with color, is killed by darkness. We keep, you know, kind of harkening back to this concept of Stannis as being in the shadows and that being a perfect narrative springboard for him to actually become the shadow in this chapter. As we saw in the Clash of Kings prologue, his lord's face swam up before him now. Not the man he was, but the boy he had been standing cold in the shadows while the sun shone on his elder brother. Whatever he did, that is Stannis, Robert had done first and better. And as we keep saying, he brought this up really well in the past couple of Catelyn episodes. Renly as Robert's ghost works so well in the context of Stannis killing his son-imaged brothers. The sun shone on the younger brother, too, and on Renly. And he claimed the crown first. His lords loved him first before they ever loved Stannis, and they never will truly love Stannis. And they're going to betray Stannis at the mere sight of Renly's armor on the Blackwater. I mean, that is just crushing for Stannis Baratheon. But this whole month of Catelyn, the celebration of Catelyn Stark, her life... Her journey has put me in the mind that all this talk of laws and armies and castles is kind of just window dressing for the true nature of the conflict. Boys who never had a parent to step in and resolve their conflicts. Robert was sent off at an early age to the Vale and only visited occasionally. And one of those times Robert visited, it was him watching his mom and dad die at sea alongside of Stannis and Crescent. That's traumatic development arresting shit. I mean, the Game of Thrones that is finding a bride for Rhaegar, Rhaegar Targaryen consumed Lord Stefan and Lady Kassana. And as much as Crescent tried to play, act as dad as the stepdad, there's really no substitute for mom and dad. So now the Game of Thrones consumes Renly, and Stannis will later claim, and I believe him, that he grieves for Renly, not as the man he was, but as the boy that he was back in the day. Because they're boys still. Their development, arrested by war, and of their early childhood trauma of watching their parents die, and not having a mom and dad to love them and care for them and discipline them and correct them, all gone. And this is a major theme we've explored, how the Game of Thrones across multiple plot arcs, it rests on a bed of of adolescent trauma. But this union of adolescent trauma resulting in magical death and violence seen here in A Clash of Kings, it has a really neat narrative forebear back in A Game of Thrones. Yes, indeed. The shadow shifting against the silken walls here should immediately put us in mind of Miri Mazdur's shadows in her tent, another of the big magic acts in A Song of Ice and Fire. As we've said before, Melisandre and MMD have a lot in common, 
And even though the first-time reader won't have Mel's involvement here confirmed until Davos 2, George is using a lot of the same images and concepts in both of these scenes to establish his framework of magic. Danny, with Miri Mazdur, was trying to save Drogo's life, of course. But as she thinks, she was also trying to preserve her dream of getting to King's Landing and ruling there. And so too is Stannis in his own way. In the process, Danny gives up Rago, the smiling perfect son in her dreams, given over to the fire, as Renly is here, the smiling perfect brother who haunts Stannis' dreams going forward. Miri Mazdur says that Danny knew at some level what deal she was making. It's left ambiguous whether that's true. And the same thing is true with Stannis' culpability here. It's suggested that maybe he knew exactly what he was doing, maybe at some level he didn't, but kind of knew at a subconscious level. And in both cases, the loss of the central, beloved Sun King figure leads to the camp around them, Drogo's Kalasar, Renly's army, falling apart and finding new leaders as the, sh- the, the shadow act in the tent ripples outward. And in both cases... It comes to nothing. Drogo's new life isn't worth living, and Danny Mercy kills him. Stannis doesn't take King's Landing after all. His fleet feeds the fire. Sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to wield it. There are also some crucial differences, of course. Danny took full public responsibility for her actions, for better or worse. Stannis does not. Miri Mazdur was also present and visible as the source of the magic in that Danny chapter in A Game of Thrones. Melisandre, during this chapter, is back in Stannis' camp, and will be hidden again under Storm's End in Davos 2. And this speaks to the different motivations at work with these characters, even though they're in almost identical situations. As I said last week, even as you have archetypes in common, humanity needs specific fleshing out. Danny, specifically, is seeking a politically transformative moment in public, building on previous changes she has made to the Kalasar. And while Stannis certainly wants Renly's army, and he is publicly backing R'hllor with his banner, He's not publicly condoning shadow assassins. That's not something... Danny says this will be about Miri Mazdur's blood magic. I claim this. Stannis does not do that with the shadow assassins. And as for Miri Mazdur herself, she had gone full rogue by this point and was trying to burn her oppressor's world down around her. (laughs) She was at the end of her story. Melisandre, in her mind, has just begun building a better world. This is an intermediate step far from the most important thing she's going to do. So while Miri Mazdur's spotlight moment with the shadows dancing in her tent was a climactic one for the characters as well as the reader, Team Stannis is just getting started, and so they have every incentive to try and cover up this shadow's existence, as we will see in Davos 2. But this cover-up rings very false. Not only because Courtney Penrose is there to rip it to shreds, (laughs) not only because we see a second shadow baby being born, but also because unlike Miri Mazdur's shadows, we are in the tent Mm -hmm. for this one. We cannot forget. Seeing is believing. This is not a familiar face swimming across a chalk outline summoned by hunger and grief like in the first half of the chapter that we did last week. This is a shadow peeling itself off canvas to cut through steel and flesh with ease before vanishing into the night. This is what it looks like when a god is real, when they're not just stories and empty vessels to be filled. The gossamer veil parts and a hand reaches down. Power for once is more than trappings, more than just a shadow on a wall. Yet it's also literally a shadow on a wall. (laughs) And that's one of the many rich ambiguities of the shadow assassins. Are they the ultimate fulfillment of Varus' riddle or an exception to Varus' riddle? Because on the one hand, they are the literal embodiment of that riddle. Here we have this thing we call power. The shadow Stannis is casting onto Renly's tent walls, bringing him down despite all his strength. Again, we get the sense that the entire book has been leading up to this. 
all of the political dialogue and so many different POVs was just rolling out the red carpet for the introduction <laughs> of power itself, getting its spotlight on the walls of Renly's tent. But on the other hand, the Shadow Babies themselves don't fit Varus's description of power. Or more precisely, they are exceptions that wind up proving the rule. They are not being given power by anyone believing in them. Stannis doesn't seem fully aware of what he's committed himself to, although I do think he gave the order in a very general sense. <laughs> Catelyn and Brienne barely understand what they've witnessed, and a lot of other people who don't see that the shadow is there end up blaming one or both of them, because this is a form of power that erases itself as soon as the deed is done, leaving no evidence behind. That, that couldn't be more different from the idea that power resides where we believe it resides. This is an older source of power than real politic. Varus's shadow on a wall framework only takes over after the assassination is done. That's when power resides where people believe it resides, when Brienne is blamed and Catelyn feels the need to save her and then events unfold as they do. You nailed it, man. I mean, Catelyn and Brienne just got sucker punched by what exactly? What exactly was it that that, that happened here? It, who knows? And here we're seeing how Catelyn's point of view is sublime in the moment Catelyn reflects the reader's shock at the event. But then she Tyrion's on up and gets ahead of the reader to recognize who it was that cast the magic shadow, as we're going to discuss later on. But in that confusion of what's actually happening, we see a principle that George has successfully imbued into A Song of Ice and Fire. How tapping into magic is playing with something the characters and readers really don't understand. And he said this in a 2017 interview where he said, Fantasy needs to have magic in it, but I try to control the magic very strictly. You can have too much magic in fantasy very easily and then it overwhelms everything and you lose all sense of realism. And I try to keep the magic magical, something mysterious and dark and dangerous, and something never completely understood. I don't want to go down the route of having magic schools and classes where if you say these six words, something will reliably happen. Magic doesn't work that way. Magic is playing with forces you don't completely understand, and perhaps with beings or deities you don't completely understand. It should have a sense of peril about it. You know, on a wider narrative level, part of what I love about magic in A Song of Ice and Fire is how it's often used by the characters in the story as a shortcut through thorny issues. Magic nets short-term advantages for the people who use it. Daenerys will keep Drogo alive, sort of. Stannis is going to gain most of Renly's army here, but these shortcuts don't bring long-term benefits. In fact, all of the gains dissolve. That sense of peril that George was referring to in using the power that Danny and Stannis and others are going to use, they don't fully understand that, and that's something that another shadowy character in the narrative is more aware of having, having had an early brush with magic at a very early age. Absolutely, and so it's the, the rules reasserting themselves after this exception. You have this sense of peril, messing with forces you don't understand for short-term gain, you rip the world apart, and then the game resumes. But things have changed because of what you messed with. Renly now lies dead, and the power that ripped apart his throat does not follow Varus's framework. The Shadow Baby is a temporary breakdown of not only the rules of reality, but also the rules of politics, as defined by arguably the most skillful political mind in the series. And I would argue that's why the Shadows freak Varus out so much. <laughs> not only because he was victimized by the forces of magic as a child, but also because, without really knowing that it's a literal shadow on a wall, he knows that his metaphorical shadow is being challenged. Maybe he's thinking to himself, will this happen to young Griff? My <laughs> own shadow that I'm trying to cast onto the Iron Throne? I have all these plans to gather armies around him, but what if they can't protect him from the sword without a hilt any more than Renly's armies protected him? In fact, they're going to be a lot of the same people. <laughs> After all, Vara seems to be in part modeling young Griff's childhood on eggs. And while Summerhall, of course, remains shrouded in mystery, we know Egg climbed the fiery ladder. 
Young Griff is a particularly relevant reference point because as I've argued before, he is the Renly 2.0 to Danny's Stannis 2.0, the, the completion of the archetype in both cases. You could argue that what we're seeing in this scene, in Renly's death, is an intimate preview of how things will go down in the second Dance of the Dragons between Danny and Young Grift. Drogon will play the part of the Black Shadow, successor as he is to Balerion the Black Dread. Both dragons have been described as shadows. Many of these same Reach and Stormlands lords, currently gathered around Renly, will probably be backing Young Grift by the time Danny arrives in Westeros, folks like Randall Tarly and Mathis Rowan, as you've written about so well before. Young Grift is also the logical candidate for the Sparrow movement, meaning he, too, will have faith symbolism all over the place just like Renly, even more than he already does with, uh, with Septa Lamour training him. The Mummer's Dragon prophecy suggests that Young Grift will win people over with charisma and magnificence like Renly before him, and we already see that from what we've seen of him in A Dance with Dragons. And, of course, you have Duck by his side, standing in for Brienne at Renly's side. And Duck is named by George in honor, probably, of Brienne's ancestor, Dunk, who guarded Egg. It all comes around, the Wheel of Time, these same archetypes recurring with their different motivations, their different individual stories. I think young Grift is going to die at the height of his power like Renly, but I think he might actually claim the throne first. See, just like how the Baratheons are a bastard offshoot of the Targaryens, the Stannis v. Renly showdown is minor compared to the Danny v. Young Grift showdown. Because Danny's Black Shadow isn't this immaterial thing that just slips in and out one kill only. It is a living, breathing beast. She is now able to ride, and he breathes fire. <laughs> and on the one hand, this makes Danny more dangerous than Stannis. The seductive quality of the Shadow Baby is that it only kills the person you tell it to, and no more. Dragons, by contrast, are weapons of mass destruction. On the other hand, they're also animals that Danny has raised. She loves them, and they love her. The Shadow Baby is uh, not a pet, mm -hmm. and it's not anything that anyone would love. This represents how Stannis' heart has become more shriveled than Danny's over time. So the passions of both love and hate will burn hotter in Danny's case than in Stannis's. Again, this is a preview, an exploration of elements that will pay off in full later. The appetizer with the main course still to come. Mm -hmm. As you were referencing last week, you talked about how Stannis at one point is thinking about, ah, oh, if only I had dragons. It's almost as if Stannis is hoping to have the power he had here in A Clash of Kings. And he's referencing this in A Storm of Swords and wanting to have that magical power in order to wipe the board clean of his enemies and sweep them off the map. But of course, he's not going to have a dragons. We're going to find out his magical power extends only to two Shadow Babies so far in the series, perhaps more as we get later on. And kind of interesting, kind of a, a little point of, of trivia and, and reference is that there is an iteration of Varys and Illyrio's plan that had young Grift wedding the Dragon Queen and harnessing the power of her magical fire-breathing dragons, which seems to sort of communicate that Varys and Illyrio are willing to embrace magic in a pragmatic sense to Varys' probably personal disgust, it, but it does mean that Young Grift, through Danny and her dragons and her army, can cast a larger shadow to seat his prepared prince onto the Iron Throne. So I think that Varys as a real, genuine disgust of magic, but he's not unwilling to utilize it as a means of ascertaining and gaining power for his preferred prince. And also, too, what is Varys referred to throughout the series from a Game of Thrones through A Dance with Dragons as a magician, a wizard, this type of person that is able to utilize magic, but likely is utilizing physical, real properties as opposed to magical ones? I think you said it exactly right, that they're, they're willing to make use of this as a tool if they can control it. The problem is, as you said so well with that George quote, the whole point of magic for him is that you can't control it. And that if you think you can, you're a fool who's probably <laughs> going to get way more than you bargained for. And we see that over and over in this series. And I think 
With Varus, it's almost an inverse. He he tries to kind of cleanse himself in magic as a way of avoiding how out of control and how dangerous it is, but, you know, it's still in the world, and ultimately he kind of still leaves himself vulnerable to it. We'll see how that pays off, of course, in The Winds of Winter. Mm-hmm. But another parallel to the death of Renly is the Red Wedding. We are witnessing the death of a young, charismatic king surrounded by his army, preparing for battle. Now, of course, in the case of the Red Wedding, the army is also wiped out. But I think it's important that Catelyn is our POV in both cases. This is an early tremor of the atrocity that will claim her body and soul. A prophetic vision of the horrors awaiting her and hers next time. This is going to be your son, your king. And then, of course, there's the parallel to the Long Night. It is no accident that the candles go out when the Shadow Baby strikes, plunging the tent into darkness. Nor is it an accident that Renly's last word is cold. Cold? Well, why should that be? Melisandre, I thought you were all about fire. Why isn't it warm? Melisandre frames herself as the nemesis of the White Walkers, come to Westeros to gather the forces of humanity together to fight the one true enemy. Yet when we look upon her works, we see uncomfortable echoes of the very evil she has dedicated herself to fighting. Is she their nemesis? Or is she their mirror image? The others and their whites are associated with blue fire, the star fire in their eyes. They have fire, Melisandre's works are cold. Maybe these forces have more in common than they would like to think. Maybe instead of accepting this purely oppositional dichotomy on its face, we should dig beneath the surface and see what they have in common, for better or worse. For better, the existence of Jon Snow, the bringing <laughs> of fire and ice together to create one of the you know better people in the series. For worse, of course, though, both ice and fire demand blood. Which is Stannis's true sword, I wonder? The sword of fire or the sword of darkness that we see him use here? Where all that is heading, of course, is the burning of Shireen in which Stannis will recreate the Night's King atrocity, probably in the Night Fort itself, but in a vain attempt to defeat the others rather than empower them. Like, that's the big point, that he's on the opposite side of the fight, but he ended up doing the same horrible thing. That's the final big parallel here, and one that, in my opinion, grounds the rest emotionally. I understand why the show gave Renly, like, a heart-punch death, visually speaking, that works, but it's really important in the books that Shadow Stannis goes for the throat. Hmm. The slitting of Renly's throat makes this scene feel like a sacrifice. Like Renly is less a king than a lamb on an altar, being bled out to seek Rolora's favor. Stannis will consider sacrificing Edric Storm, and he will make the call to sacrifice Shireen. As with Renly, there is a detached big-picture justification at work in these decisions. But there is also a clear, internal, emotional need to which Stannis is responding, every bit as much as the grand narratives of ice, fire, and thrones. As always... It's about the whole Robert left behind. That's what this scene is about more than anything else, in characterization terms at least. Renly is Robert reborn, in Stannis' eyes. The brother for which he gave it all and never loved him back, screwing him over once again and getting away with it. (laughs) And so Renly, eager to claim Robert's mantle in every other respect, must now pay for Robert's sins. He's so used to seeing Robert in his glory days looking back from the mirror, but now he sees the shadow, not the ghost in a golden crown. Renly is an echo of Robert, the shadow is an echo of Stannis. For one last heartbeat, these specters of nostalgia and resentment stare each other down. For one last heartbeat, they know each other as they are. (laughs) For one last heartbeat, they are still brothers. And then the shadow strikes, and nothing will ever be the same. In his dreams, I have to imagine that Stannis was killing Robert in this moment, not Renly. 
finally taking vengeance for all those slights for the hole left inside. And for Renly, this one last heartbeat is all he gets to process that nothing in his life is going to work out the way everything and everyone around him said it would. He's not going to win the throne like Robert. <laughs> He's not the hero. He's a red herring, a rug to be pulled out from under the audience, a temporary obstacle designed to deepen the tragedy of Stannis, who is himself a secondary character anyway. Remember, thou art mortal, as they whispered in Caesar's ears, and Renly only realizes that when it's far too late. We see it again with the end of Quentin's story when he realizes it all at once. Oh, he thought. Then he began to scream. That's so well said, man. I, I love that. That's that's awesome. And I, I kind of wonder whether that's going to be Stannis's final realization as well. Oh, and then he began to scream. We've talked about before how Tyrion is always wondering if Tywin is intending Tyrion to hold the left, that is to do the grubby work and act as the arrow catcher for the people of importance to the Lancers, namely mostly Tywin. Tying that into Stannis, we've made the point that Stannis is the Punisher, annihilating opposition on the field, clearing the way for the heroes of the story to gain and hold power. Stannis sacrificed his body to hold the left for Robert during Robert's Rebellion. He held the left and fought unglorious battles against Victarion Greyjoy, and then he took Great Wick during the Greyjoy Rebellion, while Robert took the glory of attacking Pike and seizing that castle. Here, in this chapter in Catelyn 4, Stannis sacrifices part of his soul, his essence, to propel himself forward to be the hero. And like he's portrayed in The World of Ice and Fire, Stannis was a page in someone else's history book, the actual history book that was published, and he'll continue to be one come the winds of winter. How tragic is it going to be for Stannis to learn that he was right all along, all of his assumptions about himself, that he was only the second fiddle to Robert, to Renly, and in the winds of winter, he's going to learn that he was holding the left again, clearing the field of Boltons and Freys to allow the rise of Jon Snow, King of the North, and eventually Daenerys and Bran. But there are always survivors left amidst the carnage, and those survivors can be victims just as much as the person who has been stabbed literally through the neck. Mm, very well said. That's exactly right. As I've been saying, the attraction of the Shadow Baby as a murder weapon is that it kills only the person it's supposed to and no one else. It's kind of like the ideal of a murder weapon in that regard, right? Human assassins might have to kill guards. Poison might wind up in the wrong goblet. But the shadows, with Stannis' face, stalk their prey single-mindedly. And you can see how such a tool might appeal to Stannis. In a way, it's a corrupted echo of the Stark ethos. The man who passes the sentence swings the sword. Stannis is technically the one swinging the sword here, and he's carrying out the sentence of death for the crime of treason against Renly and Renly alone. The commonalities between Stannis' ideology and campaign and those of the Starks will come up again in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons when he goes to the north. But so will the differences. Stannis delivers the hard personal justice associated with the Starks and gets some respect for that, but he does so with none of their preservation of culture and life. He is all fire and no ice in this regard. Hmm. So while this execution of Renly does match the letter of Ned Stark's law, it does not match the spirit. It does not produce the lasting feeling, the security of justice. And that is in large part because of the secrecy and mystery surrounding the murder act itself. Ned Stark executed Garrod, and was himself executed, ceremoniously in public. This is a ceremony of a different kind. Older, spookier, more ritualistic, and in private. The political community does not have the chance to absorb a clear, honest action in the case of the death of Renly Baratheon. As such, there can be no resolution, no proper public catharsis. 
I will talk more about this in later chapters, but Renly's death feels more like a modern political assassination to me and mm-hmm. how it's framed, paranoid, ambiguous, inflected with media bias. And the number one reason Renly's death unfolds that way is that the shadow promptly vanishes. This allows Stannis to kill no one but Renly. Again, you could say that makes it more ethical. But on the other hand, since Stannis and Melisandre are able to wash their hands of Renly's death, someone else has to pay. Renly is a king and a popular one at that. Cynicism about him only sets in after he's dead. In the moment, in absence of a clear killer, scapegoating is inevitable. The consequence of Stannis using a murder weapon that vanishes upon success and sounds unbelievable afterward is that someone innocent gets blamed. Stannis papers over this, and Davos too. The Lord of Light willed that my brother die for his treason. Who did the deed matters not. (laughs) Now in the moment, he's trying to skirt around his own culpability in Renly's death. But in light of Catelyn IV, this chapter here, what Stannis is also doing is allowing rumors of Brienne and Catelyn's culpability in Renly's death to spread, knowing them to be false. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about this event and the debate is that the debate is never going to go away. Tell me, is it more just to kill one man in his tent with two taking the blame or kill 10,000 in battle outside of Storm's End? I'm, I'm paraphrasing Tywin. And as we know, Tywin is utterly full of shit in that quote from A Storm of Swords after the Red Wedding, as of course, thousands of men, women, boys and girls die at the Red Wedding at the Twins. But applying that quote to Stannis' action here is something worth discussion, you know, from a purely utilitarian standpoint, and please note, John Stuart Mill and I are not necessarily friends. Stannis just saved thousands of lives in exchange for Renly's and Brienne and Catelyn's in the abstract and Iman, Kai's and Robert Royce's in reality. But did it really actually save lives in the long term? Did the Shadow Baby save people from death on the Blackwater? Not really. At best, the Shadow Baby maybe bought these men a month, maybe two of extra life. Is it going to save these summer nights from the coming war with the Golden Company or against Daenerys and her dragons when they arrive? Again, not really. Now, to, to be fair, I think you do have to examine this particular action in a vacuum before applying it to a broader context. So I absolutely did, the, did this in reverse. And George R. R. Martin alluded to this back in 2001 in a convention appearance where he's talking with two fans and where it's noted that he says a short discussion on Stannis' slaying of Renly. Martin just sat and listened. I made the point that killing someone on the battlefield is different from assassinating someone in their sleep. And Martin asked, is it really? Are you saying that you would not have participated in the attempted bombing of Hitler? Instead, you prefer to kill him in battle where he'd have a fair chance in fighting? It's an interesting George quote. I think it's worth considering at one level. But even in a narrower context, in terms of what is actually happening here with Renly's death and who is blamed, the action is still implicating two innocent people. Mm, That's a really well-reasoned argument, because you can make the case, yeah, Stannis just avoided a battle. Isn't that good? But then you say, well, Stannis isn't going to march up and go, and then you can all go home now and resume your lives. No, he's taking them to another battle at King's Landing. So preserving life, I think you'd say it's technically there, but I think it's harder to say that's really part of his motivations. But we'll we'll, we'll talk more, of course, about the, the ethical discussions around Renly's death towards the end of the episode. In the moment, in the scene, yeah, exactly, you're right. They're still implicated. They're tainted by this. Brienne has already lost her king. Now she loses everything else and must throw in her lot with strangers in a strange land. Catelyn, as we'll get into again in a bit, loses a huge political opportunity for her side of the war because of the need to get away lest she or Brienne be blamed. Anyone else in that tent automatically becomes a murder suspect. I'm emphasizing this because it undercuts the justice of Stannis' actions. Mm -hmm. As soon as Renly is dead, as soon as the deed is done, 
We see the ripple effects. We see the consequences. We see that this will not, in fact, just claim Renly's life. Sure, the shadow itself only killed Renly. But the shadow's nature means that violence will immediately beget violence as the survivors blame each other. So when we talk about the blame to be laid at Team Stannis' feet here, we must include the deaths of not only Renly, but Robar Royce, and Emin Coy, and the men-at-arms wounded and killed, as well as Brienne's emotional suffering. That is not to excuse Loras for killing Robar and Emin, nor to excuse Emin for giving way to his bloodlust against Brienne. Everyone makes their individual choices and has to own them. But this is representative of the ethical pattern in Stannis' story, where decisions he and Melisandre would like to think of as isolated tests (laughs) actually spill out well beyond their control, having devastating domino effects. None of these people die if Stannis kills Renly by conventional means. If everyone gets to point to poison or a bribed archer, all these people get to live. Sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to wield it. Once you start climbing the fiery ladder... You can't always control what gets burned. Robar and Emin come raging in, the splendid Rainbow Knights and all their youth and finery, representative of Renly's whole appeal, to find him dead. And this is a much greater blow than the death of a leader in a more bureaucratized or decentralized system, because everything is caught up in Renly. The manner by which all power flows to and from the sacred figure of the king lord can be politically advantageous. As we said in our Grand Northern Conspiracy episode, all the likes of the Manderleys and the Mountain Clans have in common is the Starks. Having Renly in common is what brought all these querulous lords together in the first place, producing a 100,000-strong army in a matter of weeks. That's impressive. But the flip side of that is when Renly dies... There's literally no reason for these thousands of people and all their infrastructure to be sharing the same space anymore. The idea of the army, the organizing principle that made one fist out of all these fingers, was thoroughly tied to Renly. He had no heir, no larger political program, no millennia of loyalty and service to call upon like the Starks. So while he's alive, his army seems unbeatable. But after he's dead, it's no longer an army at all. Again, we saw the same force at work in Drogo's Kalasar after his fall. Community is a dream we agree to share. It vanishes when we wake up and stop agreeing. All these people agreed on was, Renly is the king. And now the king is dead, so they have nothing keeping them together. So they immediately fall apart. The cause is all gone. It's all based on one person. And I want to think that's George damning Renly for having a vision which never extended beyond himself. And that was immediately reflected in the lords who backed Renly. Like we were saying last week, the Storm Lords and Reach Lords, they chose Renly because they thought he would best represent their interests and ensure their continued economic prosperity. Or corruption. Both. Give Stannis's minor lords and at least his army soldiers this. Those that remain at Stannis's side, they're backing him for to the bitter end because they believe in something. For lore, justice, the rightful claim, doesn't matter. I mean, yes, but... But roughly four-fifths of Renly's lords and knights who arrive at Storm's End are in it because Renly was their overlord, and where he goes they follow, or their opportunists as I outlined a second ago. The remaining and extremely important one-fifth of Renly's army that flees Storm's End to book it back to Bitterbridge weren't principled any more than those that remained. But they were there because they followed their liege lord's son, Loras Tyrell, or they saw no profit in sticking around Storm's End to hang out with Stannis. And I just like to think about this idea of Mathis Rowan and Randall Tarly in particular. They figure that Stannis wanted their necks on the chopping block for nearly starving him to death at Robert's Rebellion and then signing up with Renly in 299. But hey, I don't know that for sure, but the mental picture makes me smile. But those that remained, they made a 
the easy choice, which is to, to them anyways, to simply switch sides to Stannis. And, and hilariously, Davos is going to observe several of them attempt to impress Stannis with fervent devotion to her lord at the parlay with Courtney Penrose in Davos' second chapter, or pretend that Stannis' claim is now the rightful one. But we know that these are grifters and they're just ensuring that their bread, the side of their bread is always buttered. Essentially, what I'm really asking is, whence goes the Mecca crowd in 2024? <laughs> I kid, but I don't. He had to go there, folks. Bless him. Bless him. I love him for it. <laughs> but yeah, panicked self-interest immediately sets in. Everyone starts thinking about grabbing the biggest piece of the pie, escaping all the blame, taking all the credit, and working out the bloodlust they now won't be able to work out in battle. George stopped the politics dead for a magical fireworks show. And now the politics resume more fast and furious than ever in response to the disruption. Robar and Emin both promptly blame Brienne. You can see why, to a certain extent, she is holding his body, and there's no one else in the tent except Catelyn, who doesn't exactly track as a major threat. But if either man took a second to assess the situation <laughs> rationally, it would become clear that Brienne is probably not the killer. She is screaming her head off. She does not have a sword. His gorget has been cut open, which, as Loris will point out in A Storm of Swords, is nigh impossible for a regular steel sword to do. That's the whole point of wearing them. <laughs> the fact that Renly's armor was useless is evidence that something beyond the ordinary has occurred. If Robar and Emmon had asked Brienne and Catelyn what had happened, there is no guarantee they would have believed the shadow story. But they would avoid the blood madness. The immediate escalation in which death prompts no reflection, but only the desperate desire for more death. We are seeing the grand, tragic movements of the story in microcosm. The gods thunder down upon mortal men, and we tear at each other in their wake. Robor and Emin have been put in an unfair, unreasonable situation, and they somehow managed to make it even worse. <laughs> That's humanity for you. Varus's shadow on a wall has snapped back into place now that the shadow cast by his magic mirror Melisandre has faded away. Once more, power resides where men believe it resides, and power abhors a vacuum. Brienne is guilty in the court of public appeal, threatened with death and dishonor by men who moments ago were her comrades in arms for life. Of course, a lot of what's happening here is about gender. Brienne was barely welcome in this company in the first place because she's a woman. She's denied knighthood on the same basis, and we know from A Feast for Crows how she has been treated by a lot of these people. Just like how Drogo's blood riders closed in around Danny as soon as she lost Drogo's protection, it turns out Renly was the only person keeping Brienne even somewhat safe here. Hmm. This is again about power residing where men believe it resides, emphasis on men in this case. They don't think she has any right to be in the halls of power, and this pre-existing mindset informs their understanding of what has occurred. They are taking out not only their grief at Renly's death, not only their panic at the sudden instability of their situation, not only their hot-bloodedness before battle, they are seizing the opportunity to be rid of an outsider that they never wanted there anyway. As Davos thinks to himself, if Stannis falls, those who were born to lordship will pull me down in an instant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really well, I love that Davos quote. And it's, it speaks to something that we see throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Lords, blood riders, Night's Watchmen, they're all eager to call it a failed experiment and slam the doors shut behind them in order to preserve their social class and prevent the poors from entering into it. Brienne is a not-knight, member of a king's guard, rainbow guard, but they have to put up with her, that is these men who are standing alongside of her, because her father is Selwyn Tarth and Renly is publicly, publicly important, kind to her. Davos is a peasant raised to knighthood, to lordship, 
and that those with thousand plus year lineages have to put up with because their overlord and eventual king has promoted him and considers him a friend of sorts. The greater good for these knights and lords is an upward social and economic mobility. It's that they hitch their star to either Renly or Stannis or Daenerys or Khal Drogo and they tolerate these social lapses. But never doubt that these motherfuckers wouldn't threaten to toss Davos over a bridge at Dragonstone as Axel Florence is going to do in A Storm of Swords or in this chapter think Brienne is immediately guilty of murder if they knew the consequences. Exactly right. They're just waiting for their chance. And like you say, they consider the fact that Renly is, you know, bringing Brienne into the Rainbow Gar, that Stannis keeps Davos around is like weird little lapses. Like what does Kevon say? Like he's that smuggler that Stannis keeps. Yeah. It's just like they're strange pets. Like that's how Axel Florent talks about it too. Like they don't quite understand, but it's just some weird affectation of the king. That's how they all <laughs> think of this. And now they're taking the chance now that Renly's dead to get rid of Brienne. Thankfully, Brienne of Tarth is Brienne of fucking Tarth. <laughs> One of the most ridiculous badasses in the entire story, as we already saw in her introduction at the melee. Before her tears have even dried, she is snatching up her dead king's sword and taking on multiple opponents at once with equal parts speed and strength. Even in a very chaotic and fast-moving sequence, George is making sure that the reader takes note of how impressive a sword fighter his truest not-knight really is, because Brienne is going to be getting into quite a few scrapes going forward. Meanwhile, though, Renly's body is, quote, thrust rudely aside, and he continues to bleed out as the fighting breaks out and the fire spread through his tent. Again, we are being shown the sudden mantle of mortality, settling on the image of the untouchable warrior king who will live forever in the stories and songs. Turns out he's a body, like any other, given no dignity, roadkill on the side of a lost highway. Hmm. Already, the tone and themes of A Feast for Crows are emerging as the war builds. They are ostensibly fighting about Renly, but like they're just kicking his body aside. So the man himself is just far gone and overwhelmed. And the same thing happens to Tywin and Balin Greyjoy and Oberyn and Lysa in A Feast for Crows. Everyone is ostensibly fighting about them and their legacy and their death, but they clearly don't care what they would have thought of this. <laughs> Catelyn, meanwhile, slowly recovers from the horror she has witnessed and thinks only of intervening on Brienne's behalf. This is really one of her finest moments. She tells the truth, however crazy it might sound, and leverages first her honor and then her own body to save Brienne's life because she is innocent. But this heroic impulse would come to nothing if she couldn't convince Robar Royce, who gets a minor tragic arc all to his own in this storyline. Catelyn previously thought of him as a frivolous, thoughtless young man like his king, less mature than Rob, despite having a handful of years on him. But though Robar assumes Brienne's guilt initially, he doesn't rush in to kill her, like Emmon and his men-at-arms. He holds back, giving both Brienne and Catelyn a chance. Catelyn knows she looks and sounds like a madwoman to Robar, going on about a shadow and sorcery. But when she begs him for assistance in the name of her honor and family, well, he feels duty-bound as a chivalrous knight to act. This is one of the very rare cases of these summer knights adhering to their vows, proving themselves worthy of the title. And Robar immediately dies for it. Mm, Rhaegar fought nobly, Rhaegar fought honorably, and Rhaegar died. At the same time, though, I mean, it's a big fucking theme when it comes to these Royces. You know, we see Waymar in the Game of Thrones prologue, and now Robar here in Catelyn's fourth chapter in A Clash of Kings. Yeah, they seem like self-satisfied Sigma Tau bros who like to boss around the work. But when it comes to a moment when they have their own no chance and no choice time, they're walking out into the rain, sword in hand. 
the Song of Ice and Fire has this great rep for bad and good characters going good or bad, respectively. And I think that reversal for both Raymore and Robar is quite affecting and affecting, quite effective and aff- affecting. The Royce who joins the Night's Watch for a chance to command one day due to his last name and lineage, and the Royce who only backed Renly because he can't win any more glory and coin as attorney knight, as attorney knight, both go down swinging, bravely doing the right thing for no better reason than it's the right thing. Sure, they die, but they die for the right thing. And I think, you know, as much as it sounds kind of stupid, dying, doing, going out, doing the right thing seems like the best way to actually go out, honestly. No, everyone dies, but first they lived. And yeah, there's such a great parallel between the Royce brothers. Again, this wonderful minor tragedy. George is working into the backstory. Like, you could imagine a story where, like, it's it's about the Royces and their tragic downfall through their sons. But instead, they're just in the background. You have to kind of search through it to notice it. But then, you know, you, if you notice this tragedy, it feels so strongly. And even more so than Waymar in some ways, because Waymar was going up against, like, this, this unknowable eldritch evil from beyond the curtain of light. And poor, poor Robar is getting mm-hmm. taken down by his own comrade-at-arms. Mm-hmm. Presumably seconds after Catelyn and Brienne walk away, Loras Tyrell storms into his king and lover's tent, and the sight of Renly's corpse inspires in him a blood rage more powerful even than Emmons. Just as Emmon turned on his fellow Rainbow Guard Brienne, Loras kills his fellow Rainbow Guards Emmon and Robar for their failure to defend Renly, though they couldn't have saved him. Not only does Robar's bravery get him killed, but he suffers the same fate as Emin, who gave way to his prejudices and bloodlust. So what worth heroism if it gets you the exact same fate as the coward as the asshole? Now that's not to say that Robar's sacrifice doesn't matter. It allows Brienne to escape, and Brienne does a lot of good. But it doesn't spare him from death, just as Renly's glory and power didn't save him. It rains on the just and unjust alike. As you say, no chance and no choice. You do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you think you'll be rewarded with a happy ending. No one gets a happy ending. Everyone just gets an ending. I love that. Yeah, everyone does get an ending. But I think Robars is one of the saddest, most bittersweet send-offs because it does allow Brienne to survive. And it does allow Catelyn, at least for a time, to survive as well. And they, afterwards, after this confrontation here in the tent, they have to get moving quick, fast, in a hurry or face the consequences in the form of Loras Terrell coming for them. Everything is moving so quickly. Catelyn knocks down Emmon and leaves him to die on Loras's blade. Brienne cuts their way out of Renly's beautiful tent, now ablaze. Following on the visual metaphors from last week, we have the center of Renly's rule, sacrificed to the fire as he was, throat slit by the shadow cast by Relor's fire. Around them, the camp collapses as the information spreads. Like the shadow, like the idea of an army, the information is an invisible source of power. Renly's battles were already coming apart as the rumors spread from mouth to mouth. Wherever those rumors touch, they light the metaphorical fire of disunion and panic. The more sober-minded conspire, while others are brought to outright tears by the loss. And that tent that they escape out of, which looks so glorious as Catelyn is entering it, as we talked about in the first part of this analysis of this chapter, it's now easily cut through and burns to cinders around them. Tell me that tent isn't a metaphor for Renly himself. Bright and shiny, pretty to look at, but not worth all that much at the end of the day. Absolutely right. I love that. And so Catelyn tells Brienne to walk away from that burning tent, not run. If they act guilty, they will be seen as guilty, because power resides where men believe it resides. All the world is a stage. In this moment, without seeming to realize it, 
Catelyn begins to act as the mother figure Brienne has never had, informing her how to act in public to save her skin. Their relationship is born in this moment, baptized in blood. Catelyn's first gift to Brienne was saving her life. Her second gift is teaching her how to grieve for the dead. Brienne must lock her sorrow inside and walk away from her beloved dead, just as Catelyn had to walk away from Ned. This, Catelyn comes to believe, is a woman's role. She must always watch, and watching is tied to grieving. You are there to watch others live and die, the main characters of reality, hmm. and so give their life and death meaning by your presence. Brienne is now the keeper of Renly's flame, whether she likes it or not. The last person to touch him, to see him alive, one of the few to remember him. Catelyn is here to teach her how to wear a composed mask, even as that loss eats away at her underneath. In Catelyn's case, of course, it's slowly turning her into Stoneheart. Hmm. It's all part of the process of growing up and reevaluating your relationship to the world of your childhood, just as Catelyn did last week with her gods in the Sept. I love, too, that the first half of this chapter in Catelyn 4, she spends so much of the preceding day and night reflecting on her own losses. Now she made a poor diplomat, but a good mourner. The gods, fate, or whatever was preparing Catelyn for this mentorship role to Brienne to be there for Brienne when her own version of Ned, or Brandon, ended up dying. Mm, exactly right. There's this constant theme of death she has to deal with all ticking down to the Red Wedding. And throughout the whole story, George continually ties the process of maturation to a changing relationship to death. What it means to grieve, what it means to kill, this is what it means to grow up. And this reckoning with the Reaper, taking place within the characters in this scene, is externalized onto their environment, as we see with another passage full of inspired imagery. The night fires had burned low, and as the east began to lighten, the immense mass of Storm's End emerged like a dream of stone. I love that, a dream of stone, while mm -hmm. wisps of pale mist raced across the field, flying from the sun on wings of wind. Morning ghosts, she had heard old Nan call them once, spirits returning to their graves, and Renly one of them now, gone like his brother Robert, like her own dear Ned. As I said, political power snaps back into place after the shadow disrupts it. Storm's End emerges from a dream of stone to resume its reassuring solidity as the fires and their shadows burn low. But everything is different now. Stannis will wake from his own dream to find that it wasn't just a dream, it was real. The sun dawns on a world without Renly. Storm's End lacks its lord. Ghosts fly from the sun as they always do, the shadows and the others. Like so many creatures of death and vengeance before them, they work only by night. They fly on wings of wind like the winds of winter, like the wind off the sea that is the vengeance of the gods, like the winds that blew Renly's death into his tent. Renly now belongs to this other world. George described him in Catalan II as a ghost in a golden crown, and how true that is now, a memory of a king. He joins Robert and Ned among the biggest casualties of A Song of Ice and Fire so far, at least on this side of the Narrow Sea. Renly's death is by far the most significant one we will experience in all of A Clash of Kings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's our first major death in the series since Drogo's at the end of A Game of Thrones. And really, it's going to be our most important death until Rob and Catelyn Stark's occurs at the Red Wedding. And, and I find it fascinating that George doesn't kill off a major character for a whole book and a half. It's as if we're supposed to meditate on Renly's life and death for an extended period of time, reflect on the magical side of it, think about what it means for the characters surrounding him. So I guess my question is, what? how does the narrative want us to feel about Renly's death, ultimately? 
That's a great point. It's a great question. And I, th I think the answer is ambiguous. This farewell to him, as, as Catelyn puts it, talking about all the mourning graves going back, mourning ghosts going back to their graves, it's very bittersweet. It neither sanctifies nor condemns him. It is merely a recognition that he lived and died, like anyone else, like everyone else. Brienne, meanwhile, calls our attention back to the act itself, because she didn't see the shadow. So from her perspective, Renly's throat just suddenly exploded without any rhyme or reason. Catelyn tells her how she knows the shadow was sent by Stannis. She felt him. And this is another of the chilling ambiguities that define the Shadow Assassins. On one hand, she acknowledges that it's an opaque statement. She doesn't describe the Shadow as having Stannis' facial features. That would be an easier shorthand. She just says she feels him. But on the other hand, I know what she means by that mm -hmm. on some level. She sensed his presence, a whiff of him on the air, his essence. All contact leaves traces, as Kyburn says. This frames Stannis himself, not just the Shadow, as the Stranger. A chilling embodiment of death, who will break past every guard and every taboo to strike. This dreadful feeling informs Catelyn's state of mind as the chapter ends. She joins forces with her guards and tells them that there will be no battle, and that they must ride like hell, and that they must kill anyone who tries to stop them, because everything has changed. The sensation, once again, like the sensation as Miri Mazdur danced and Drogo's Kalasar collapsed around her, is that the combination of political and magical transformation is breaking the world apart at the seams. And we get one more beautiful passage to capture how everything has and has not changed in the wake of Stannis' shadow on Renly's wall. As the long fingers of dawn fanned across the fields, color was returning to the world. Where gray men had sat gray horses armed with shadow spears, the points of ten thousand lances now glinted silverly cold, and on the myriad flapping banners Catelyn saw the blush of red and pink and orange the richness of blues and browns, the blaze of gold and yellow. All the power of Storm's End and Highgarden, the power that had been Renly's an hour ago. They belong to Stannis now, she realized, even if they do not know it themselves yet. Where else are they to turn, if not to the last Baratheon? Stannis has won all with a single evil stroke. It's all back! The imagery, the colors, the rainbows, the gorgeous pageantry that defined Renly's shadow on a wall. It turns out it never belonged to him at all. As he inadvertently gave away at the parlay in Catalan Three, the power actually belongs to the men holding those banners, and they belong to Stannis now. Well, for the most part. <laughs> As we'll get into starting next week, a very significant chunk of them, led by Loras Tyrell and Randall Tarley, defect back to the Reach. Yes, so now we interrupt this amazing Emmett soliloquy of talking about the colors and all the nerve of Songbuster to talk about military numbers because we are going to get a little bit of depth on the type of army that Stannis is bringing to King's Landing in Davos' second chapter. And ultimately, what I think the narrative purpose is for Renly's death is, is myriad, but one of the reasons is that Stannis has to have an army to attack King's Landing. So again, we're going to get more in-depth on numbers in Davos 2, and as the narrative bends towards Blackwater, but let's just give a quick idea of the army that Stannis gains, and we'll unpack this a little bit more in Davos' second chapter in about 10 weeks or so. So, as we know, Stannis starts with maybe 3,000 to 5,000 soldiers outside of Storm's End, and Stannis will later say that he has five he has 20,000 in Davos 2, and Davos is going to say that he has Stannis has nearly 20,000 men all mounted in Davos's third chapter. I mean, consider this for a moment. Just do the math. You know, do the 
the dumbass would be. That's a nearly 600% increase in the, the number of soldiers that Stannis has on to head up towards the Blackwater. It's the force that Stannis needs to actually make the attack on King's Landing. Yet, it is not enough. It has never been enough. It's never been enough to actually grasp this thing we call power. It's so maddening it just slips away from you. And we're seeing that here in regard to Renly as well. The bittersweet feeling of the signifiers of power standing immortal in contrast to the mortal men who lay claim to them. The bright colors and rich fabrics that Renly loved so much have outlived him. The long fingers of dawn lend them their beauty, as George puts it, but we have just seen the long fingers of night at work. Even as this bright, shiny army tries to move on with Stannis at the center instead of Renly, the shadow of the shadow lingers. Catelyn does not feel the warmth of the sunlight. She does not take heart from the beauty of the banners. She feels the chill of night and death around her heart. In the context of the parlay in Catelyn 3, Stannis' threat against Rob's life didn't mean more than a political failure on his part in the moment. It was a hypothetical, after all. Now it no longer feels so hypothetical. <laughs> now Catelyn has seen a young king surrounded by devoted guards and a huge army struck down because Stannis Baratheon came with his iron jaw and iron eyes to declare that he must die. It's as if Catelyn bore witness to the black shadow on the field of fire and must carry word back to Torin Stark about the king on Dragonstone and his deadly black shadow. Or it's as if she bore witness to the fiery end of young Grift at the, at the hands of Drogon the black shadow, and now she must carry word north to Jon Snow about the queen on Dragonstone and her deadly black shadow around the wheel of time we go. Instead of carrying the word of Stannis' death, as Renly had intended, Catelyn carries the word of Renly's death. And not only the word, but the image, chilling her heart. Stannis declared that Rob will be next. How will Catelyn ever sleep easy, knowing that word could come of her son's death at the hands of an assassin who vanished into thin air? How could she sleep easy with Stannis as king? Whatever else Stannis has done here, he has made himself not only an enemy, but a figure of fear and death in the mind of a woman who could have been a crucial ally. And it is all because Stannis thinks he can only rule through fear. And because of this fearsome act and its consequences, because of how the magical, magical and political shadows interact, Catelyn loses what might be her last chance to save her son. Hmm. Think about it. If Catelyn wasn't in that tent, she wouldn't be a suspect and so might leave with Loras and the other Renly loyalists instead, back to Bitterbridge. By the time she got there, she'd be in a prime position to preempt Littlefinger and win the Tyrells and their allies over to the Stark side instead of the Lannisters. And I think George wants us to consider this AU because he hangs a lampshade on it in A Storm of Swords, having Catelyn think wistfully about Rob marrying Marjorie instead of Jane. If you're going to break the marriage vow, my son, why not do so for a powerful house? Well, Catelyn could have been the one who made that happen. A Stark-Tyrell alliance completely changes the war. Even if Tywin can stop Stannis in time himself, which he probably can't, <laughs> he is then facing down a massive army under Rob, who has repeatedly outsmarted Tywin. And Catelyn could have still made this happen, despite being in the tent when Renly died. If, and only if, she was willing to throw Brienne under the bus. It's always that thing that comes up. What is the life of one, the one bastard boy against a million? Was the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? Was the life of one not knight in the form of Brienne Tarth against a possible Stark Tyrell alliance that would potentially solidify and cement 
what ends up happening, what could have what could have solidified, what could have come down and would have been an unstoppable force on the battlefield and in politics. And that kind of gets back to a point you were making in Catelyn three part one. Stannis had a golden opportunity to present himself as the alternative to Renly and Joffrey. And he fucked it up by declaring Rob Stark a traitor with his time coming soon. Just keep on the same like AU mentality. Keep in mind, imagine this where Stannis hadn't declared Catelyn's son a traitor. Renly still dies, but Catelyn returns home to Riverrun, as she does in the narrative. I, I don't imagine that Catelyn would be too keen on Rob swearing to Stannis here, given the context of Renly's death. But I do wonder whether she would have been a bit less ambiguous about it as she is in Catelyn's fifth chapter, our next Catelyn chapter, where she's talking with Brienne and she says... He is gone, Brienne. She's talking about Renly here. She said as gently as she could, Stannis and Joffrey remain, and so does my son. He wouldn't. You'd never make a peace with Stannis, would you? Bend the knee. You wouldn't. I will tell you true, Brienne. I do not know. My son may be a king, but I am no queen. Only a mother who could keep her children safe however she could. I just think it's just really... I mean, it's ultimately George is writing the narrative to make it as interesting and as twisty turning as possible. But imagine an AU where the Starks ally with Stannis instead of the Starks ally with the Tyrells is equally as fascinating of an AU. And I think that speaks to things that George wants us to consider. And we also have to look at the fact that Stannis really messed this up, both politically before this murder, justified killing, whatever you want to call it, actually occurred. Family, duty, honor, and family comes first. Catelyn will always defend her sons against Stannis, and that makes it very difficult for her to ever think of Stannis as king. And if she was, you know, going to protect him, protect Rob from Stannis, protect Rob from the Lannisters with the forces of the Tyrells, this is her chance. I mean, Loras is as inclined to blame Brienne as his fellow Rainbow Guards. So if Catelyn frames her, if she sticks around and then Loras comes in and Catelyn says, it was, it was Brienne who did it. I'm so sorry, Loras. What a terrible thing to have happened. Let's talk, you and me. He would be inclined to see her as an ally. Maybe he could bring his family along. Catelyn would have her powerful allies. Rob would be safe. The Lannisters would be back on their heels. The only one who would suffer in all this is Brienne. And Catelyn simply cannot do that to her. And we will get into why in Catelyn 5 when they have a, a longer conversation about this. But for the moment, it is important to note just how many tragedies are at work in this chapter. The big one is Stannis and Renly, of course, but under the surface, characters ranging in importance from Catelyn to Robar Royce have their own thorny gauntlets of choice and fate to navigate. They try their best, but the house hmm. always wins. If there is one takeaway from both halves of Catelyn 4, it is that we are all mourning ghosts, condemned to one day fly from the sun on the winds of winter. Hmm. Which is, of course, coming out next week. But <laughs> sorry, I just got to throw that one out there. Damn straight. Uh, yeah, I think that's wonderfully said. I do think that ultimately we're seeing a vision of death where life could have existed. And I think that's ultimately a story of tragedy, which is Stannis' story. It's definitely Catelyn's story. And hopefully it will not be Brienne's story. And I think that about wraps up for a Death Force this episode. Wow, that was a, that was amazing all around, sir. I, Oh, likewise, but that was great. I mean, it's, you know, it's testament to George. This is some of his absolute best stuff. I'm so, so happy to do it with you. It is. Shifting into foreshadowing. Now, Brienne might fulfill her vow that she makes here to kill Stannis. We saw that play out in season five of the show. But this could also be a red herring, as Brienne's story in the books goes in a considerably different direction, both literally and metaphorically, from her uh, story in the show. Moreover, as a POV... 
And the only time she even thinks about Stannis is to realize that, oh, he was telling the truth about the twincest <laughs> all along. So maybe that's is just like, you know, this was an initial want and it's being replaced by her greater need in like, you know, screenwriting terms. And so Brienne's character is transforming away from the need for vengeance towards something else. But George could always bring that back. He could always send Brienne north if he feels that's the appropriate way for Stannis to die. What do you think about that? Do you think this is genuine foreshadowing or a red heron? <sighs> that's a, such a hard question because I, I do think that I don't hmm. I don't think that that this was something that George told David and Dan at revealing the fate of Stannis. I think he told them about Stannis burning Shireen and probably told them that Stannis would die, which I think is are both things are going to happen in Song of Ice and Fire. I don't think it necessarily Brienne is going to be the cause of that death, although there is some poetic license that George could put into the narrative because Brienne, she may end up going north, right? She ends up in north, at least in season eight of the show, right? Or season actually before that season five of the show, which, of course, she's not in, in at the end of A Dance of Dragons. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I have a hard time with that one. It could play out, but I do think that there's a greater sense that Stannis is being consumed by the fire, so to speak, metaphorically. Mm. Because um, I think it also has to consume him himself too, not just the heart in terms of burning Shireen, but the fire consuming himself. So I've been thinking somewhat recently that the potential was Stannis sacrifices himself or not sacrifices himself, commits suicide via fire, perhaps throwing himself onto the pyre of Shireen. And when he realizes that there are no stone dragons coming out of that fire. That's a great thought. Uh, people are also pointing out in the chat that uh, dealing with Stoneheart might be how Brienne deals with vengeance in the books instead of Stannis. True. Because you know, she's being reunited with Catelyn. She swore the oath to Catelyn, so that's very emotionally painful. And that Brienne asks Catelyn that she not stand in her way if she wants to kill Stannis. And maybe in a way like Stoneheart is metaphorically standing in her way by being the mm -hmm. person Brienne has to deal with vengeance-wise. So maybe that's what that plot is going to end up being about. But we shall see. <laughs> Moving into our discussion portion for the episode, I think there is this one, one big question that we have to ask here. And it's not the question of who killed Renly Baratheon, Stannis or Melisandre. <laughs> not that question, sorry. We'll be covering that question in Davos 2 when we get a lot more of the evidence relevant to that question. The question I think we have to ask here is regardless of who did the deed, does King Renly Baratheon, first and only of his name, deserve what he gets here? And before yes. everyone just yells yes at me. Moving on. We're moving. moving on. <laughs> my answer, personally, the correct one, is yes and no. On the one hand, as we said last week, Renly goes to his grave declaring that he is happily committing himself to a show of force rather than Catelyn's great counsel. Be careful what you wish for, right? He said it. Now we see who is stronger. And then Stannis killed him. Guess we saw who was stronger. Renly has been hoisted on his own petard. There's a karmic quality to that, and I think it is meant to reduce reader sympathy that Renly was kind of asking for it in his final moments. Even before those final moments, though, I don't understand what it is that Renly honestly expected Stannis to do in hmm. response to Renly claiming the crown. For reasons of both temperament and backstory, it was never likely for Stannis to bend the knee to Renly, especially because he's telling the truth about the Lannister twincest. I get that Renly does not expect a shadow with his brother's face to slit his throat, because that's not a thing he knows exists. But how does he not see a faceless man coming? <laughs> how does he not see Stannis bribing one of his guards coming? What does he think Stannis is going to do about this? Renly played the Game of Thrones. You win or you die. There is a closed-loop closed loop quality to it that makes it tempting to just move on, as many of his followers do, as Stannis tries to. But Stannis can't move on. He looks awful afterwards. And not just because the shadow baby saps your soul. He can politically justify why Renly's death was acceptable, as I just did. But it goes deeper than that. Hmm. 
at a personal, emotional level, he hurts more than he anticipated. I have a younger brother myself. We have spent so much time together over the years. We've shared amazing experiences. We've hurt each other, come back together, grown together. I cannot think of anything he could do that would make me think it's okay to slit his throat and let him bleed out. Hmm. Definitely not just breaking the law or claiming a crown. Kinslaying is taboo for a reason, just like guest right is taboo for a reason. Breaking this sacred bond makes it very difficult for you to act like a trustworthy member of society afterwards. If Stannis has proven willing to shed his own family blood, why should anyone else whose bonds with him are less sacred by definition sit easily with him in power? Now, I do think the best argument in favor of killing Renly is that the murder method preserved most of his army intact, allowing Stannis to command them against the Lannisters. Stannis would have been much weaker after a battle, so you could say this is better. But that argument is going to immediately fall apart because Stannis delays at Storm's End to stare down Courtney Penrose instead of immediately moving on to King's Landing. He thinks he must rule through fear since men don't love him like they did Robert or Renly. That worldview is dangerous and frightening, more so than Renly's death itself. And this worldview and this delay leads Stannis to defeat at the Blackwater. Had he moved on King's Landing sooner, Tywin and the Tyrells would have been too late to stop him. So it was all for nothing. I think you could say that Renly's death is justified in the moment, but becomes retroactively unjustified when Stannis blows the opportunity. Hmm. But I've been talking all about the consequences, and not about the act itself. George sometimes frames deaths as cathartic. Brienne killing Rorge, or John executing Jano Slint. More often, however, he uses character deaths to deny catharsis, to remind us of the humanity of even unsympathetic people, how frail and frightened they are in the face of the Grim Reaper. We saw that in Book 1 with Viserys, we'll see it again in Book 3 with Joffrey. And in between those two dead kings, we see it with King Renly in Book 2. Now, of course, Renly isn't nearly as nasty and personally violent as those two. But again, he commits himself to kinslaying right before he gets kinslayed. So why mourn him? I think George uses several tricks to make us lament Renly's death as an event, even if we don't necessarily miss him personally, and that is a careful balancing act. One trick, as I said, is that Stannis loses to the Lannisters anyway, so it comes <laughs> to nothing. Another is how Loras mourns Renly and speaks very movingly of him in A Storm of Swords. It is also in how this death scene is written, however. The Shadow Baby attack is not framed as the righteous execution of a cartoonishly unjust, unreasonable man, a la the execution of Janos Slint. This is framed as a nightmare. Hmm. It is framed as a sickening departure, not only from taboo, but from the world of reality. It feels wrong, no matter how you feel about Stannis or Renly. Brienne is screaming, Renly's choking on blood, everyone is shouting and sobbing. This isn't what justice should feel like, is it? Just like how we might want to see Theon and Cersei punished for their crimes until we see from the inside what that looks like, I think our skepticism of Renly's politics is supposed to, at least in part, melt away in the face of the sheer horror of his death. So much of A Song of Ice and Fire is about the transition from summer into winter, about the moment righteousness turns to ash in your mouth. We can justify Renly's death in the abstract, but in the execution, well... There's a reason Stannis is going to go to his grave thinking of Renly's Peach. I think you really get at the heart of it, man. I think in the abstract and at the policy level, 
it's justifiable. You know, emotionally and personally, it's Stan is setting his own heart afire, and it's not for the last time either. And, you know, because I can't keep my trap shut about it, I was deployed once to Afghanistan in 2010, and I thought of the Taliban as a faceless enemy worthy of only death and or defeat, preferably both. But for, for me, I, I saw the face of a, of a dead enemy, a man who had strapped an explosive vest to his chest and then exploded. He killed one of my guys as well as himself. And, and I, I really can't, can't speak to anyone else's experiences but mine in that moment. But looking at that guy's face and, you know, seeing kind of the vestiges of the person in there, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to wax about or talk about the gnarly horror of that scene that was almost 10 years ago to the day that we're recording this episode. Um, but I wondered about, you know, things like his family back home in, in Pakistan. What would his mom think of when when she found out? And, and I don't I don't mm-hmm. I don't want this to be like crass comparing real world traumatic experiences to Renly of House Baratheon in no, a song of Ice and Fire. I but I mean, you. like, yeah, thank you. I, but but the way you you were talking earlier about Brienne and Loras's reactions to Renly, it's kind of sparked those memories. You know, to me, Renly is is a villain. I mean, someone who was furthering the chaos and permanent war footing Westeros was getting itself into. He seized power for complex seeming reasons, but ultimately for his own vanity. Renly wasn't a reformer as much as he wants himself to make himself out to be. His vision was wholly centered on himself. Mm-hmm. But but watching him die in a horrific manner, a shadow sword through the throat, makes me wince and feel a, a horrific shock at Renly dying. George frames his death in Clash as a wholly unsettling experience, and the impact of his death fans out emotionally to those left behind, Brienne, Loras, Marjorie, and especially Stannis. And that's kind of where I come down to your perspective. Yes, Renly's death, Renly was justifiably droned as policy. That takes nothing away from the emotional tragedy to the people who loved him and the overall tragedy of a man cut down by war and violence before his time. We should never forget that Renly Baratheon is 21 years old. I'm 36 years old right now. 21-year-old me had a whole life ahead of him. Renly Baratheon had that too, and it was cut down short. And he wasn't a monster like Joffrey or Ramsay or the Mountains Men and all these other folks that seemingly deserve death. But I think, yeah, it's it's hard to like kind of talk about all that stuff. You know, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's, it's well, hard to talk you. about war. Like, yeah, I think like, yeah, go ahead. I was going to thank you for talking about it. I know that's not easy. And that's those those deep, intimate spaces of empathy with all other living beings. Like, I think one of George's insights as a writer is that that knowledge, the knowledge of us all being one and together and intimacy and empathy, that's terrifying as well as yeah. rewarding, you know, because it means everything you do wrong to another person is something you do, you're you doing to yourself, to your brother, to your comrade, to your sister, to Jesus mm-hmm. himself, whatever you believe, you know, you're you're not just doing it to another, you're doing it to yourself. And I think that's that's part of what George is getting at with these family disputes, with kinslaying, that it's this this form of self-negation and, and Stannis getting rid of the, the best part of himself. Again, you know, uh, there's plenty of arguments to make. Frank is making the point in the chat that very well as he always does that uh, that kinslaying, you know, the taboo isn't meant to just shield the aggressor. Like Renly was just as ready to kill Stannis. Sure. So sure. what is what what's to be done there when both people want to kinslay? Like who's to, who can be said to be at fault? And I agree with him. As I've said, you know, Stannis and Renly are chasing each other down down the well. They're chasing each other to the bottom. I, it's not the case that Renly was just doing great and Stannis fucked this up with his addiction to taboo and blood magic. Right. Right. That's not what's happening here, but. The moment itself is when it all comes rushing in, and it's just, yeah, it's 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 not it's not the tragedy of a good man passing away. It's 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 very specifically what you said. It's the tragedy of a young man passing away, and yeah. it, for part of me feels like that's sad, no matter how much of an asshole they were. 
exactly. just wasn't his time. I mean, I was a fucking asshole when I was 21 years old, you know? I, I mean, Randy Baratheon was too. I mean, that's... A lot of people are like that, but they have a whole life ahead of them to mature and grow and live in a community and in a family and have mm-hmm. friends and all these sorts of things. And again, it's it's so hard to... George does not want us to shy away from both Renly... Uh, well, George does not want to shy away from the ambiguity of the action altogether. I think he wants us to both recognize why it was done, why Stannis killed Renly, why you can justify it at some level, policy-wise, perhaps like in a kill-or-be-killed manner. But I think he doesn't want to take away the emotionality of it, too, what it actually means when someone dies like this in a horrific manner, when someone is taken before his or her time. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why I just gravitated very strongly to A Song of Ice and Fire and first to a Game of Thrones, the TV show, before after coming home from that experience. Because it, it did feel like it was it felt real to me in a like a story sense. Like it felt real to me and relevant to my own experiences. And that's ultimately, you know, the best takeaway you can take from any source of literature or fiction is how real it feels to you and how it can affect you and bring like your your heart to bear. And please do not set your heart on fire. That's ultimately it. Well said, sir. That makes me proud to do a podcast with you. I agree with everything you said there. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for this episode on part two on A Clash of Kings, Catlin 4. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. Uh, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. Follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Peefish on Twitter, Brennan Peefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, and Septon, Merryful Head Affair. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. We really appreciate your support. Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much. We really, really appreciate your support. It feels especially, you know, strong to feel that way. I especially feel strongly that way, given that we just hit our goal and that uh, this has all been made possible by you folks, among all the other patrons that we have. So join us next week as we interrupt this regularly scheduled chapter by chapter flow to bring you an episode all about (sighs) Renly Baratheon. He just died, but he's back, everybody. He's back. He's He's been resurrected. It's Ghost. We should be just called the Ghost of Renly Baratheon instead of King Terrace. Ah, we'll figure out the We'll have like five titles by the time we record it, Jeff. It's fine. That's all good. And this will be our patron episode for the month, but we are also going to be doing it live on... We will see you guys all on Monday, 420. Right? Is that what you guys are all about? That's not what I'm about. (laughs) You don't say, Jeff. (laughs) Nothing gave that away. (laughs) 
So we'll be doing that at 420 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it will be released on our regular podcast feed. So we really appreciate you guys, all of our listeners, regardless if you're a patron or not. We want to give you guys a small sample and taste of what we can offer you guys if you're interested in joining our patron. Again, love all of our patrons. We'd love to have all, well, not all. We would love to have as many of you as possible come to our patron. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you as always. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching for those of you who watched. And we will see you guys, literally, some of you, next week.